passage this morning comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 59, verses 16 and 17. But I will sing of your strength and will joyfully proclaim your faithful love in the morning. For you have been a stronghold for me, a refuge in my day of trouble. To you, my strength, I sing praises because God is my stronghold, my faithful God. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we trust and we cherish that your words convey who you are to us truly, genuinely, and for all time. You have described yourself as the great protector and provider. So Father, you alone we want to rest in. May our souls find hope in you. May we recognize that you are our rock, our salvation, our stronghold, and we trust and know that you will not be shaken. So Lord, this morning, will you turn our hearts uh, towards your word? May you help us to perceive with great joy what you have written long ago. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, friends, it's the last day of the year. We made it. Yeah, I guess. There you go. All right. If you didn't get that thing done, you're probably not going to. Just being real with you. But as you reflect back on the year, how did the year measure up? Did you get everything accomplished that you hoped to? Did you fulfill those New Year's resolutions that you set at the beginning of 2023? Did you lose that nagging bit of a few pounds that we all just added to this past week? Did you get the promotion? Did you get the new job? Did you get the girlfriend? Did you get the ring? At the start of a new year, we often have so many goals or resolutions. I will change this. This year will be better. And sometimes that's true, and sometimes it's not. I'll come back to this new year at the end of the sermon, but when we left chapter 18 a few weeks back, you could almost envision it as a year ending and a new one beginning. Saul and David worked through their issues, it seemed. David even marries Saul's daughter, Michal. Surely things are looking up, right? Not so fast. It's going to be more of what we've seen from Saul, only ramped up now. And before we jump into chapter 19, let me remind you briefly of what is important to remember. All of what is taking place here, these events in this book, and really all of Scripture and all of the world, all of what is taking place here, though, is under the providence of God. He is working out all of these events for his intended purposes, and God has sovereignly chosen to remove the kingship from Saul and to give it to David. Saul failed to obey God. He failed to listen to him, and as such, he is judged by God. And as we're going to see, because Saul did not obediently fight God's enemies, because he didn't completely wipe them out, he will have no peace in his kingship. So while Saul still has the kingship, he's the sitting king, David is the anointed king. He's the one that's coming onto the scene, and he will be king. In fact, if you're taking notes this morning or there's an outline in the bulletin provided, that is our main point of what I think is undergirding this entire chapter. God's anointed will be king. All of what we're going to see is reinforcing that. But the tension here in this chapter and with so much of Scripture, is that there are two wills in conflict. Saul here is seeking to make his will come to pass. He wants David out of the picture, and he is working towards that end. And ultimately, doing some typology here, who does Saul represent? What is he a type of? Well, he represents the schemes of Satan and of the wicked, who hate the things of God. This, too, is going to be discussed later. 
And who does Saul and his will find himself pitted against? Well, he thinks it's just David. He thinks he has to outsmart or outfox another man. He, that's who he thinks what he, he's pitted against. But as we're going to see, he's pitted himself against God. And God's will is not to be thwarted. What he wills will take place. So if you haven't yet, please turn to 1 Samuel 19 as we seek to understand what God through his word has to tell us. I'm basically following the outline provided in the chapter. So three scenes of deliverance or protection that we're going to look at and discuss the various themes within. So first one that we see is protected by Jonathan. Protected by Jonathan. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 19. And if you remember, as we left, if you look back at the end of chapter 18, David's success is rapidly spreading. His reputation is growing. So verse 30 of chapter 18 says that every time the Philistine commanders came out to fight, David was more successful than all of Saul's officers. So his name became well known. And now we jump into verse 1 of chapter 19. Saul ordered his son Jonathan and all his servants to kill David. But Saul's son, Jonathan, liked David very much. So he told him, My father Saul intends to kill you. Be on guard in the morning and hide in a secret place and stay there. I'll go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are and talk to him about you. When I see what he says, I'll tell you. Jonathan spoke well of David to his father Saul. He said to him, The king should not sin against his servant David. He hasn't sinned against you. In fact, his actions have been of great advantage to you. He took his life in his hands when he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great victory for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. So why would you sin against innocent blood by killing David for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan's advice and swore an oath, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be killed. So Jonathan summoned David and told him all these words. Then Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he served him as he did before. Do you remember the chant? Of the Israelite women. Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands, and now it has only grown. Because of God's blessing and God's spirit upon David, he truly is the golden child of the nation. He has success wherever he goes. He leads Israel's troops and they have victory. And this victory is like none other for the recent time, for so long. The Philistines had been terrorizing Israel, had been constantly at war with them and constantly defeating them and hounding them. And now God's servant, his anointed king, is providing deliverance. And what should Saul, as the sitting king, be doing? He should be rejoicing. He should be overwhelmed with satisfaction that their borders are secure, that they are routing their enemies, that they for once are the victors. But he can't. He can't rejoice. His sinful heart is rebellious towards God. It's jealous towards David and murderous in its intent. Such that, I hope you caught it, the author of 1 Samuel says at the end of chapter 18, David's name is well known. In the very next sentence we read, Saul ordered his son Jonathan and all his servants to kill David. Well known, let's kill him. By this point we're thinking, not again, Saul. Not this vindictiveness Again, not this anger and this wrath. The reality is, friends, and what we've been confronted time and time again throughout this study, if we're being honest with ourselves, we know there's a little bit of Saul in us, isn't there? We can resonate with him more than we realize. We like to think that we look more like David, 
Well, that's not always the case. Sure, we don't throw spears at people, hopefully, or plan murders, but we can water those seeds of jealousy in our heart. Maybe you struggled with this throughout 2023. We can allow that root of bitterness to just push down a little deeper into the soil of our hearts and neglect the Spirit's pruning. We get more and more jealous. We covet what we don't have. We see other families with the perfect kids or the perfect marriage, and we start to get a bit jealous, wondering why God hasn't given that to us. We work with someone, and all that they touch or all that they do just turns to gold, and they get this nonstop praise from the boss, and we can succumb to thinking just a little bit more ill of them, can't we? Moms. We can look at other moms that seem to have it all together and have a bit of those moments, right? Our hearts are sinful, friends. We often want the praise and the recognition, and, and like Saul here, when someone else gets it, it, it afflicts us. It can so easily cause us to sin. And so it's important that all of us know where we are prone to that, where that temptation lands heavily on our hearts, where that jealousy and covetousness is most stirred up. It affects us all. And so what do we do in light of that? Well, that could be a sermon in and of itself, but simply put, we learn more and more to rest in Christ and to look to Christ to practice gratitude for what he has chosen to give us. We look to him in his word. We pray. We seek accountability. We all need that in our lives. But Jonathan's protectiveness of David is the point here. Saul has this secret meeting, this secret meeting with his leaders, and they want to kill David. Although the covenant of brotherhood and friendship is coming next chapter with David and Jonathan, Jonathan has a dilemma, doesn't he? Did you catch on to that? His father is asking him to do something, and guess what? In many ways, it actually serves Jonathan to do it. Because who is Jonathan? He's Saul's son. He's the heir to the throne. Many by now throughout Israel probably knew about, heard rumors of the second anointing of a new king, of David, of this runt of the litter who was tending the sheep. Many can see the signs that are coming. They know what's coming. And I don't think Jonathan's naive. I think he knows deep down the kingship has been removed from his dad, removed from his family line and given to another. And most would want to protect family, would want to protect themselves in that moment. They would want to be the next king. There's a temptation here for Jonathan. In a way, it kind of reminds me of the temptation of Peter the night before the crucifixion. A little servant girl questions him and he cowers. He denies his king. And here Jonathan could deny God's anointed king all the same, but he doesn't. He acts righteously and he warns David and they come up with a method of letting David know if Saul is still out to get him or if he can come back into his presence. And then notice here in the text, Jonathan's advice and counsel to his father. Friends, it is true that there are wicked fathers in this world. And along with wicked fathers, fatherlessness is a real thing. It's a serious thing, and it clearly has the greatest negative effect on the family unit compared to anything else. Fathers, you are so important to what is happening, not only in the home, but also in society at large. So fatherlessness is a real thing. Absentee fathers are a real thing, and so are wicked and unwise fathers. And I would argue that the church has a role in addressing all of those things. But notice here, in the face of a father's wickedness, 
this son's counsel to him. Look at verse 4. Jonathan spoke well of David to his father Saul. He said to him, The king, you, should not sin against his servant David. He hasn't sinned against you. In fact, his actions have been a great advantage to you. He took his life in his hands when he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great victory for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. So why would you sin against innocent blood by killing David for no reason? What does Jonathan counsel his father with? Well, wisdom, yes, but ultimately it's God's word. He's referencing the sixth commandment. He's referencing Deuteronomy 19 as well in the taking of an innocent life. His father is planning murder. And David is innocent in his actions towards the king, towards Saul. He's done nothing ill towards him. So Jonathan speaks wisely. And there's something for us to learn here from Jonathan about how he treats his wicked father. He doesn't capitulate. He doesn't follow in his footsteps. He looks to God's word. And despite his father's wickedness, he continues to show him kindness. Christian fathers, if I could address the flip side of this, if it hasn't happened yet, there will come a time when these seeds that you have been hopefully faithfully planting with your children, by God's grace, they take root. And you see evidences of faith come into their lives. And it's an encouraging thing. And praise God for that, right? Because the things that, of God that you have been teaching your sons and your daughters, they actually come to teach back to you. When they notice an area of sin in your life, or when you spoke harshly to mom, or how you have been a bit emotionally and physically absent from the family. Or just an area where year over year you told them to do something and now your actions aren't lining up with that. And in God's sanctifying providence, they bring it up to you. Now I fully admit that they don't always do it at the best time, do they? My son prefers to do this when there are multiple people around. So. But nonetheless, they, like Jonathan, they bring up something to you. How do you respond? How do you respond when called out? Are you the type of father who can never apologize? The type of father who can't own up to his actions because of maybe a fear that they won't respect you? Fathers, as I said earlier, you are so important. You are needed. You are vital to everything that is happening. It's always vitally important as well that our children learn from us what it means to own up to our mistakes to apologize, to repent, to take accountability. It's on us to teach them that. But your response in that moment, your response in that moment teaches them just as much as your words training them up did previously. And friends, my prayer is that we would all listen to God's discipline, all forms of God's discipline and correction in our lives, even when it comes from the mouths of our children. And verse six is astounding based on what we know about Saul. He's rash, He's not the sharpest tool in the shed all the time, if we're being honest, and he's planning murder. And yet Saul listened to the counsel of his son, and he swore an oath. The oath's going to come to mean nothing, right? But still, let's appreciate verse 6 while we can. So David came, comes back. He's in the presence of Saul for a period of time. Jonathan has delivered David. He protects him. Point number two now, second scene, protected by McCall. Protected by McCall. As war comes and David defeats the Philistines, Saul's anger towards him grows. So look with me starting in verse 8. When war broke out, David went out and fought against the Philistines. He defeated them with such great force that they fled from him. 
Now an evil spirit sent from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his palace holding a spear. David was playing the lyre, and Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear. As the spear struck the wall, David eluded Saul, ran away, and escaped that night. Saul sent agents to David's house to watch for him and kill him in the morning. But his wife, Michal, warned David, If you don't escape tonight, you will be dead tomorrow. So she lowered David from the window, and he fled and escaped. Then Michal took the household idol and put it on the bed, placed some goat hair on its head, and covered it with a garment. When Saul sent agents to seize David, Michal said, He's sick. Saul sent the agents back to see David and said this, Bring him on his bed so I can kill him. When the agents arrived, to their surprise, the household idol was on the bed with some goat hair on its head. Saul asked Michal, Why did you deceive me like this? You sent my enemy away, and he has escaped. She answered him, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him everything Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel left and stayed at Naoth. In this second instance of Saul seeking to attack David, David or Saul also tries using another family member. Jonathan has dissuaded him, and now Saul is going to his daughter that he gave in marriage to David. And if somebody was to write, I had to say this, if somebody was to write a biography of Saul, I feel like they have to title it Spirits and Spears, because that is what summarizes this man's life. We have already seen an evil spirit from the Lord before, so I'm not going to discuss that again. You can go back and listen to the sermon uh, on chapter 16. I simply want to say, in light of this evil spirit, God is sovereign over all that is seen and not seen. And here, this evil spirit is to do as God directs. And as this spirit comes, Saul again has a spear in his hand. We can all imagine this, right? We can imagine this paranoid ruler, this paranoid king who thinks everybody's out to get him and he's walking around constantly with his weapon nonstop and his paranoia is only growing such that we have a similar scene to what happened in chapter 18 happening here again. He throws the spear at David. He's crazy. So David rushes home, but even McCall knows how her father is and she convinces David to escape. Like the spies being lowered out of the window in Jericho, so the same happens to David here. And then what does McCall do? She plays the old trick of someone's asleep in the bed. We've all done this as kids, right? Right? It's time for bedtime, and you put some pillows where you're supposed to be sleeping, and maybe you're hiding under the bed. Kids, I encourage you to do that tonight. It's a perfect (laughs) night for that. Well, she does this, but with a household idol. And she puts some goat hair on it and then proceeds to say that he's gone. And when questioned by her father, she sides with her husband and lies, saying that he threatened her. So let me just discuss real briefly this idol and the lie. We know by now that the Bible doesn't sugarcoat things and it doesn't condone everything that it records for us. Warts and all, sin and sorrow, if God intends for it to be in here, then it's in here for us. And so clearly, we should be surprised that the anointed king of Israel allows a household idol into his house. Could this have come from McCall and she brought it into the marriage? Maybe, but David is the leader. He should have thrown it out. But what I do want to say is how the text is, is talking about this. It's not in the context of worship but merely the act of deceiving her father. So I don't want to go further than Scripture does, but we don't know all the details. But they have an idol, even though they understood Yahweh to be supreme. 
And the point here is that they really don't think much of this idol since they basically make it into a doll and a fake person and put goat hair on it. So that's what the idol. Second, McCall clearly lies. Twice, doesn't she? And the second time in verse 17, the first time is telling them that he's sick in bed when he wasn't. Second time, verse 17, Saul asked McCall, why did you deceive me like this? You sent my enemy away and he has escaped. She answered him, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? David did no such thing. Now Saul probably doesn't believe this lie, but there's not much that he can do. David is gone and McCall is his own daughter and she lies. She lies to protect her husband and deceives her father. What do we do with this? Well, Christ community, as we've reflected back over 2023, we have walked through a lot of difficult texts this year, haven't we? We've been all through the book of Judges, and in the beginning of 1 Samuel, lots of difficulties as well. And so, if I'm being honest, I don't feel like this lie in any way trumps some of the things that we have to walk through in Judges, but this reminder is still true concerning this lie. Life is messy. And life in a fallen world is messy. And so we don't succumb as Christians to despair, but we are real as well about how life is. And as we look forward to a new year starting tomorrow, we do so with eyes wide open. And we recognize on one hand the immense blessings that God has given us, the beauty that we can recognize in nature, the acts of generosity and love and sacrifice that define our Christian community here. But on the other hand, we do so as I said, with eyes wide open, recognizing the heartache of living in a fallen world and the deaths that will come, that cancer diagnosis that will shock us, the loss of a loved one that will leave us wondering, what do we do next? And so we realize that life in this world, this side of the new Jerusalem, it's hard and it's messy. And I'm trying to teach my children this as well. There's a certain age where I don't sugarcoat the answer anymore. But I, as appropriate, start to allow them to see more and more of the effects of sin in this world. And in the midst of that, I hope to point them back to God and his ways more and more. But I don't want my kids surprised by the things of this world. I want them innocent to evil. Yes, innocent in the sense of not committing evil. But I want them to be strong believers who recognize that this world is not how it's supposed to be. And we need to be busy fulfilling the commission that our Lord has given us. So McCall lies. Her motivations are good. And in the face of sinful anger and injustice, she wants to protect her husband. But really, let me just say this. I'm going to discuss this lie a little bit more, but that is not what the text is emphasizing. Her lie is not the problem in this text. It's Saul. It's that Saul is wicked and angry and manipulating, and he's putting his own daughter in this position. He wants, think about this, the king of Israel wants the men to bring David, who he thinks is lying in his sickbed, so he can kill him in his sickbed. What has happened here? And so she lies to him. Thomas Aquinas was a Christian monk from the Middle Ages who, in some of his writings, differentiated between different types of lies. He categorized them into three ways. First is what you would think of as a lie, lies of maliciousness, just straight lies that are wicked. Second, or what we call lies in jest, where it is clearly a joke. I don't do those. And third, (laughs) lies of necessity. (laughs) Calm down. Lies of necessity, only morally justifiable in very rare circumstances, such as innocent lives being at stake. 
Now, clearly, we know which one McCall's fell into. But this is what I want us to just wrestle with a little bit this morning as we're thinking through our Christian morality. How does this lie fit into our understanding of God and his word? Was her lie a sin? Yes. Did God still use it? Yes. And we can think back as well to other examples in Scripture. We can think back to the Israelite midwives who delivered the children even though Pharaoh had told them not to, and they lied and said that the Israelite women just give birth too fast. We can think back to Rahab who lied about the spies, and then later on in Hebrews, she's commended for her faith. Not her lie, but her faith. What about those lying to the Germans to protect the Jews? How should we think of this? Some of you have maybe read The Hiding Place by Corey Tim Boom. In it, this devout Christian family hides Jews and has to struggle with whether to lie or not. So Corey says that she would do it. She would lie to save the Jews. And she tells about how the first time that she lied to a German's face about it, she thought that she would be struck down by God right away. Praise God for a conscience like that. Some of us could use it. But Corey had a niece, Cocky, who had resolved from a young age to never lie no matter what. So the Germans raid their house one day and they ask her directly, are there Jews in the house? And she says, yes, they're under the table. There's a trap door there. Then when they go to start looking, she starts laughing for some reason and the rest of the family starts laughing and then the Germans, right as they're about to start looking, think that they're just playing a prank on them and they leave out of frustration and anger. God protected them, and Corey made her point, arguing in the book that that's because she told the truth. But then afterwards, the family keeps debating on Cocky's insistence of not lying. You really should read the book. But there's something for us to think about. What would you do? Maybe discuss that with your family today at lunch. Is it ever okay to lie? Children, ask your parents this afternoon why Pastor Ryan kept talking about lying so much. Ask them these hard questions. But Saul's attack on David is nonstop. And notice in these chapters, notice here as well, real quick, ending this point, notice here that it's only the good things that David has done that arouses Saul's hatred and anger. It's only the good things. Peter tells us, friends, that it's the same for Christians. They will slander us as evildoers. David has done nothing wrong towards Saul, yet he hates him all the same, and in many ways it's the same for us today. So McCall protects David, and he flees from that town, and he comes to Samuel. And so let's pick up reading in verse 19. When it was reported to Saul that David was at Naoth in Ramah, he sent agents to seize David. However, when they saw the group of prophets prophesying with Samuel leading them, the Spirit of God came on Saul's agents, and they also started prophesying. When they reported to Saul, he sent other agents, and they also began prophesying. So Saul tried again and sent a third group of agents, and even they began prophesying. Then Saul himself went to Ramah. He came to the large cistern at Seku and asked, Where are Samuel and David? At Naoth and Ramah, someone said. So he went to Naoth and Ramah. The Spirit of God also came on him, and as he walked along, he prophesied until he entered Naoth and Ramah. Saul then removed his clothes and also prophesied before Samuel. He collapsed and lay naked all that day and all that night. This is why they say, is Saul also among the prophets? We've seen protection come from Jonathan. We've seen protection come from McCall. And at this point, you probably could say, well, protection comes from Samuel, right? Well, No. 
this protection and really all of the protection, as I said, is under the providence of God. And this point, point number three, is that he's protected by God. More irony, as we saw in Judges and 1 Samuel already, more humor, more selfishness, more sin. Saul just won't stop. And God is going to teach him a lesson here. So let's walk through these verses as we close out. David flees to Ramah, and he tells Samuel what is happening. And at this point in the story, it's like every action movie that I always watch, and my wife is always telling me you only like to watch action movies and nothing else, but there's always a good guy and a bad guy, and at some point at the end they're going to fight, right? Saul has sent all of the previous ones before. He tried using his son. He tried using his daughter. He sends his secret assassins to capture or kill David, and everything has failed. Remember our two wills from earlier? God's will versus man's will. So he sends agents and they end up prophesying. He sends more and they do the same. Even a third, they do the same. Everything has failed and now Saul himself will go. When others can't get the job done, you just got to do it yourself, right? So he goes. And notice in verse 23, he arrives in Ramah and the Spirit of God also comes upon him as well. Rather than this having to do anything with Samuel, it was the Spirit of God that made the previous agents of Saul prophesy. And here it is the Spirit of God making Saul prophesy, such that Saul ends up laying naked all day and all night. And here's the point that the writer is making for us. The kingly robe is off of him. He's naked on the ground. Such that people can ask, is Saul among the prophets? This question underscores that he's no longer king in any true sense. He is stripped of his robe, and people aren't questioning if he's a king, but if he's a prophet. And the blessing of God to be, on, to be king is now on another. And even more, Saul's nakedness is seen as a, as a form of embarrassment. The king of the nation finds himself naked and prostrating on the ground because he pitted himself against God. And so what's Saul learning here? I think what Saul is learning here is that God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. If you seek to go against the Lord's anointed, then you will find yourself under the punishing hand of God. You cannot raise your hand against the Lord's anointed without his permission. His anointed will be king no matter what. Saul can plot in vain, yet God will not be swayed. God's will will be done. In this chapter, if I could just summarize it like this for you, you can hopefully remember it. We see three deliverances, two wills at war, and one true king that is coming. Three deliverances, two wills, and one king. And friends, I would be remiss if I didn't point out how this points forward to Christ our king. When I've been talking about these two wills, the reality is that this has gone nowhere for us today. Since the resurrection of Christ, God's kingdom is going forward. Disciples are being made. The gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. That is all true. His will is being done. In the same time, against that, you have sin going forth. And Satan and those who deny Christ seeking to go against all that God says and wills. Men and women today who both consciously and unconsciously hate God and want nothing to do with his reign or his say in their lives. And although we as Christians, we know the end, we understand what's coming in the coming triumph that Revelation outlines for us, the reality is, is that we are at war. The war that began in the garden, the war that's being fought here in 1 Samuel 19 and that is still being fought today, and it's the war of the serpent versus the one who crushes the serpent. 
And what we see in chapter 19 of this will of man versus the will of God is just a microcosm of what is happening today. Those against God continue to rebel while those of us following him continue to see his kingdom and his church go forth until he one day comes again, fully consummates the kingdom to judge the living and the dead and we will reign in the new Jerusalem. But it is in the meantime, as Psalm 2 verses 1 through 6 outlines for us, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. That's how they think about God's say in their life, God's word. Let's tear it off. It's a chain to us. It's a rope that keeps us down. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. They plot against, they conspire against his anointed one. This was true of Saul. It was true of the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders in Jesus' time. And it's true of every antichrist that has come. And today it's true of all of those who are not submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. They conspire against him. They are willfully against the things of God. And yet, verse four, how assuring is this to the believer? This is how you think of God. The one enthroned in heaven laughs and ridicules them. Heaven laughs at the futility of these people. That's the sovereign God that we serve. Saul found this out as he thought that he could go against God's anointed one and those against him today, apart from the grace of God at work in their lives, will find out on the day of judgment. God protects David as his anointed king. We know that there's more coming to this David and Saul saga, but let me just offer three quick points of application on this last Sunday of 2023, trying to apply this chapter to our lives going forward. I'll just say these points up front. First is this, rest in God's protection. Rest in God's protection. It's clear from the text that David was protected in various ways and ultimately by God throughout chapter 19. And I do have to say this, you and I are not God's anointed one. That's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But God does protect his people. He does preserve his church and he does care for those who call upon his name. And so what do I mean by when I say protect? Well, it can't mean that there are no physical ailments or sufferings that will come your way. We have faithful saints in here who are walking through physical sufferings this very day. We look as well to the Christian martyrs of the past who remained faithful to the end, even to the point of death. In the world's eyes, they weren't protected at all, but the Christian knows better. So no, it can't be physical protection, that's not promise, and it can't be financial protection, that's not guaranteed. But for those united to Christ, this is what the protection is, for those united to Christ through God's Spirit, we are protected in that our eternal future is secure. Our salvation is secure. So hard things will come, but we serve the God, as I say often, who is with us in the valley and on the mountaintop and everything in between. And I love what one Christian writer says about this topic. He says, sometimes the clearest evidence that God has not deserted you is not that you are successfully past your trial, but that you are still on your feet in the middle of it. David went from trial to trial, didn't he? But he never doubted the goodness of God nor his protection of him. And friends, David's God is our God. 
We don't fear what might happen in 2024 or 2044. God's got us. This coming year, rest in God's sovereign rule and protection over your life. Application point number two, submit to God's will. In this battle of the two wills that we see happening, Saul wants his will to be done and not the Lord's. Speaking frank, is that true in your life? I pray that the Spirit would convict us where it is, but are you holding on to something so tightly that you simply cannot let go? And the Holy Spirit, if you truly reflected back over 2023, has been gently prodding you, gently convicting you, gently showing you what you need to do, and you can't. It's a clenched fist, and you don't want to give it up. It could be a person. It could be a habit of certain, a certain sin. Submit to God's will in all of your life, not just some of it. And further, I realize that everyone in the church will struggle with this question at some point or another. My graduating seniors are always struggling with it. What is God's will for my life? What do I need to be doing or pursuing? Well, listen, he gives us his word, and he gives us his spirit, and he gives us his church. Don't isolate yourself from these things and lean on your own understanding. Don't do that this coming year in 2024. And maybe for us as a church in 2024, maybe 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 through 18 should be our prayer for the coming year. He says, we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle. Are you idling in your faith? Just letting the car run but not going anywhere. Comfort the discouraged. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Are you patient as others are being sanctified as well? See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In a fallen world where we can so often feel lost and confused, meditate on this verse. This is God's will for you. Submit to him. Last application point, look to your king. Although Saul knew that the kingship had been removed from him, he would still fight tooth and nail to not have it take place. And he would fail to transfer the kingship well. He would fail to bow to the Lord's anointed one. And he would fail to embrace the new king. Friends, this side of the cross, we know who the Lord's anointed one is. We know who this king is. He's the son of David. Jesus Christ, the king who calls on us to follow him, to love him, to submit to him. He's a king as well who enters into this messy world and this messy life that I outlined for us, and he dies on our behalf. A king that we just celebrated at Christmas that comes into the world and he offers us good news of forgiveness and reconciliation. And rather than having to work for what he offers, rather than us having to do something for what he gives us, he calls us simply to place our faith and our trust in what he did for us and what he accomplished. He alone is the one who can accomplish salvation. Listen, if you've been zoning out this entire sermon, it's been hard for you to pay attention. If you hear anything I say, hear this one thing. Jesus Christ is your only hope in life and death, and he alone is the one who can provide salvation for you. Look to him. Rest in him. Look to the king who is full of grace and love and mercy, but a king whose patience will not last for forever. Look to him this coming year in all things, for life under his rule is greater than any life under our own. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we as your church can freely gather here to worship you in spirit and in truth this morning. 
We thank you that we can praise you as the God of the universe, the one whose will will not be thwarted. Praise you as well that we can sit under your word, that your word uh, shapes us and trains us and corrects us and rebukes us and convicts us and encourages us, God. And I pray that by your spirit, all of those things would take place in here as needed. But Father, we, as we reflect on this year, we know in our heart of hearts that at times we are a lot like Saul. We like to think of ourselves as more like David. Father, help us to not look to ourselves, but to look to your son, the provided sacrifice. Help us to look to him more and more this coming year and to rest in him. I pray that that is true for all of those in here. We love you. It's in your sons and we pray. Amen. Thank you.